Hello, you. Welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we're talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's just Sarah and me. This is a, a, a format we used to do much more often before we were like, how do we get guests on the show so that they will become our friends? <laughs> A podcast story as old as podcasts have been around. This one is a little bit more just all about the summer fun. So buckle up and get ready to have some fun with Sarah, me, Leatherface, and the Sawyer clan. And if you're new to the show uh, and you're not into horror, you don't have to watch the movie in order to enjoy this conversation. We always love hearing from folks who listen to the show that they would never in a million years watch a horror movie, but they like listening to us talk about it. I think this is a perfect example of that phenomenon. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, if you don't know, is a 1986 American black comedy slasher film directed by Toby Hooper. It is the sequel to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also directed and co-written by Toby Hooper. This is our second Toby Hooper movie in two weeks. Anyway, we'll get into all of that a bit more uh, momentarily. How are y'all doing out there in the world? How uh, how are your lives? How is your life? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? What are you listening to? We love hearing from you. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at You Are Good Pod. You can find us on Instagram, also at You Are Good Pod. We have a website, which is linked in all of our socials. You can get in touch with us there. We love hearing from you. Let us know what's going on in your world. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Two things strike me that I wanted to share. One is a thing that friend of the show, Amy Cannon, said to me recently. I'd shared a tweet that someone named Skylar Higley had tweeted that reads, emotional maturity for me is primarily having gone from saying, I've seen this to simply ha ha ha. <laughs> I feel like we all have someone in our lives who somehow has seen literally everything we've tried to share with them already before we have. It just seems impossible. And I love that. I feel like this was kind of a point of emotional maturity for me too. And Amy and I were chatting a little bit about this. And she was recalling her friend in school who uh, she noted was absolutely unbothered by saying, I don't know, or I haven't heard of that. And she was moved by that and moved into action and adopting that. And I remember the moment that I felt that too. And Amy said, you know, vulnerability is powerful. And I agree. The whole lesson of this overall project of being alive <laughs> is being able to be at peace with that and all of the things that means. So I don't know, that struck me. Vulnerability is powerful. Thank you, Amy Cannon. You are right. The other thing I wanted to recommend to y'all, and we've talked about this before, but I love, you must remember this, it's one of the shows that I have loved for a long time. I feel like it's one of the shows that made me realize what podcasting could and should be. Karina Longworth has been on Sarah's show, You're Wrong About, talking about the ratings board and the rating system. And Karina has been on this path for the past year talking about the erotic 80s and the erotic 90s and the movies that came out of all of that. And she's now in the middle of her erotic 90s series. And she covers movies that we have covered before and that I'm sure we will cover in the future, including Pretty Woman and Thelma and Louise and has said many things about these movies that I had not thought about before. 
and Korean is going on a bit of a hiatus before coming back with the series. So if you like the conversations we have, but you know, you know, the conversations that we're having are limited by the fact that we're just talking about feelings in one way or another. Of course, we're being critical sometimes, but we are not critics. Karina is a film historian. She knows sort of the overall layered history of a lot of the stuff that we talk about here and goes into it deeper over there. This is not an ad. I'm just a big fan of the show. So check out her series. You must remember this. Anyway, now is the time where I tell you that You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies, is made possible with your support. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you so much. You make the show possible. This is how we pay our bills. This is how we pay the people who work on the show. This is how we, you know, artists and musicians and writers, etc., make a living. So thank you for doing that in exchange for doing so. You get bonus episodes, which I think is pretty cool. Our next bonus, which is coming out shortly, is Hannibal, page to screen. It is the book. It is the movie. It is a fun conversation. <laughs> All right, that's enough for me. Let's get into it with Leatherface and the gang. Let's talk Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Howdy, Alex Steed. Oh, very Texas. <laughs> very Texan of you. I'm so excited. I had never seen this movie before today. Yeah, just so one is aware because of the um, the titling of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels makes this confusing. We are covering Toby Hooper's, what, 1986 sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? That sounds right. As opposed to... A movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was released last year as a direct sequel to the original. This is not that. This is Toby Hooper's 80s Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. <laughs> and even he was like, we should just call Chainsaw one word. It's, we, ha- we should stop that confusion. <laughs> this is kind of the bane of my existence because for whatever reason, I've chosen to feel very strongly about the fact that in the original and finest of all the Chainsaw Massacre movies, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Chainsaw is two words for some reason. And I don't understand that choice, but I respect it. Whenever people write it as Chainsaw, I'm like, no, it's Chainsaw. That's just how we do it. Sorry, everybody. That's just the choice that Toby Hooper made, like God before him. You So you had not seen this movie before. Tell me why you had not seen this movie before. I think it's because I love the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre so much. And I think that like going back to my tweendom and teendom in like fan fiction communities, I feel a lot of stress about canon and canon changing and being altered and being respected because I'm just that kind of person who can't enjoy anything casually. I think this is why I feel... Part of why I feel stressed when people are like, you gotta watch Severance or whatever. And I'm like, listen, my special interests are very important to me and it's hard to add a new one. And I don't really watch stuff casually. I just like find things to watch obsessively. It feels like a different approach to media. And I feel that way about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And I knew that this sequel was like, seemed completely different in tone. And it, and it pretty much is, but I am also now an old lady and I have loosened up a tiny little bit and I really enjoyed it. 
And so before you before you dive into like what this movie is, like how would you describe the vibe of this movie? Like and especially how would you describe this vibe of this movie in contrast to its predecessor? Okay, I have an amazing answer for that, which is the first half is like 90s John Waters, where it's like kind of satirical, but mostly just like silly, mm-hmm. you know? Sure. And so basically the story is that we have a radio DJ, relatable, named Stretch, <laughs> who's like a hot denim wearing independent woman, <laughs> a Gen Xer. A la Lelena Pierce, or I guess she's probably born in the early 60s, like a a very end of the boomers. But like those those last boomers that came out like the last fritter, you know? (laughs) Yes. Like how Tom Cruise is a boomer. Right. Yes. This is the micro generation of boomers that stretch is from. I always think about that as the like illustration of like what the boomers were is I think I think Spielberg is the eldest of the the boomer age and that mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is of the youngest and to think of that mm-hmm. as like the win- the window sills. That's perfect. You're like minority report. Yeah. That's the boomers. It's the minority report stretch. It's true like at the elder end you want to wear a baseball cap and shamble around and lie in a shark's mouth and at the younger end you want to run as fast as you can through European cities over and over for no reason. That's exactly right. That's where we and that's where we find stretch. And there's stretch and so she's She's working at like a headbanger radio station, but she wants to do something more with her life. And she gets a call from like, I wrote down in my notebook, this is the young George W. Bush. <laughs> totally. They're just Texas yuppies. <laughs> Texas yuppies. There's a guy in like a yellow fair isle sweater. You're like, well, he's dead meat. They're being real assholes. And then they're driving on a trestle bridge and who should start drag racing with them? But the leather faces <laughs> and Leatherface kills the driver, George W. Bush, with a chainsaw. And then Dennis Hopper is called in to investigate the crime scene. And he's like, I'm Franklin and Sally's brother. And you're like, Dennis Hopper, born 1936. Paul Partain, born 1946. All right. He's their uncle. Is he? Yeah, it's his brother's okay. kids. That's what. Yeah, it's his brother's okay. kids. That, yeah, thankfully. That makes more sense based on how Dennis Hopper looks. Because you look at Dennis Hopper in 1986 and you're like, is he 40? Is he 65? You know? Absolutely. He maintains exactly how he looked from that point forward, really. It's true. You know, an old man with his skull pressing against his forehead. But Stretch got a call from these guys when she was DJing. And in the only detail in this movie that bothered both of us. Oh, God. She can't hang up on callers. It makes no sense. I worked at a radio station. (laughs) This makes no sense. And it seems to be just like in this one specific instance, because it seems like they have had the ability before to turn it off. Hmm. But they're like, he's like, I'm trying. I'm doing everything I can, which like leads one to believe that something else is making this happen, but that is not what's happening. It makes no sense that they can't drop the call, but it works to drive the plot forward. You, get, you just got to have it. And so <laughs> Stretch goes to Dennis Hopper and says that she has a tape of this murder that he's investigating. And at first he's like, buzz off, little lady, basically. And she's immediately like, based on a, on a like two inch news art story is immediately like everyone thinks you're a has-been and no one believes you 
Yeah. And she's like, I'm here to be on your side, mister. I'm here to do something and not just play headbanging music. (laughs) I know. And I was like, listen, Stretch, I don't know why you feel playing headbanging music isn't socially (laughs) meaningful, but I certainly think it is. Are you similarly curious as to why he didn't want the evidence that she's brought to him? Like, if he is struggling in the way that we know he's struggling, you think he'd be eager to receive that evidence? Yeah. Well, and especially like you watch this, I don't know about you, but I watch this and I get the distinct feeling that like they only had Dennis Hopper for like five days because most of his screen time, he's alone in a room or something. Definitely. And so a lot of this movie is Dennis Hopper acting against no one and nothing as if he's Bob Hoskins in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is really cool. You said that the first half of it feels a bit like a like a John Waters thing. What what does the second half feel like to you? Well, yeah. So the second half, which takes place at like the Leatherface family compound, I wrote down in my notebook, feels like Pirates of the Caribbean, <laughs> the ride. <laughs> right? They even have like full skeletons like pointing at stuff. There's like a million spotlights. There's mist, it feels like. So I've watched this movie not a ton of times, but enough times to know everything that happened while it was happening. And every time I watch it, I feel like by the end of it, I'm like, that was long. Like the last half of it (laughs) is long. It is long. And then every time I restart it, I'm like, only an hour and 40 minutes? I remember this movie being so long. Somehow they stretch the last 35 minutes into, it feels like three hours (laughs) I was thinking about this, and I think it's because there's fucking too many things happening (laughs) at every second. There's always like a minimum of two things going on, and like the set itself is so busy that your eyes have nowhere to take a break. It looks super cool. Like what they did is weird, but it looks great. But yeah, every time I'm like, this is still like, what is happening? There should absolutely be a Texas Chainsaw Massacre to the ride at Universal (laughs) Studios. And it's just an abandoned Alamo theme park. Yeah. Is that where they live? I missed that part, that they're in an abandoned Alamo theme park. Yes, they live in an abandoned Alamo theme park. Well, duh. So, okay, so this is... The basic plot summary, we go from John Waters to Pirates of the Caribbean, the Universal Studios version, because <laughs> Dennis Hopper is like, all right, Stretch, I do want your help. Play the tape on the radio. And she's like, that's probably an FCC violation, but I will. <laughs> and so she does. And then the Chainsaw family shows up to her house to take care of her. And meanwhile, out of nowhere, we have seen the older brother, Jim Sidow, Cedo, mm-hmm. one of those, win a chili cook-off and have Stretch like cover his winning the competition <laughs> and say a bunch of like really overt things that you're like, boy, if I was running a fairly organized cannibal family business, I would maybe keep a lower profile than this. It's the meat. No secret. It's the meat. <laughs> What the judge or the announcer in the contest like bites on like a little piece of bone probably and he's like one of those hard shelled peppercorns. <laughs> yeah, like what is their motivation? <laughs> well, that's the really interesting thing, right? Because the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we did an episode about it a couple years ago, but it's like about this group of college age people in Texas who drive to a farmhouse that in real life is immediately outside Austin 
to go to this graveyard where there have been reports of grave robbings to see if their grandparents are still safely interred. And they don't really figure anything out. And so they go to their grandparents' house and then they are out of gas for their van. And so their friend goes to the neighbor's house to get gas. And who should be there but Leatherface um, and the whole Leatherface family. And so they kill the teens and then they have Sally, our main character, over for dinner and she escapes. And it's just like some kids on a sunny day who go to this farmhouse that is full of this family that like you kind of imagine, or at least I do for economic reasons, is serving human meat at the barbecue place in the gas station they run because it just makes more sense economically for them. Right. Yeah. They've gotten run out of the, and we get a little backstory through mechanization. They've gotten run out of the uh, meat industry. Yeah. The slaughterhouse jobs they used to have. And it's, it's subtle. It's got themes and it nails it. It's of themes, but it's so silly. Like the themes are delivered in in such straight faced, Mm -hmm. silly ways. Like him talking about the meat at the gas station. Like you don't feel like it's like built on the themes first. Like they made a movie and it it, it captured themes. And in this, we get the same people (laughs) at a chili (laughs) cook-off. Right. And then they like have taken over this theme park. They're underground. They're all organized. They have... Like we see the uncle brother cook guy driving an RV with a car phone in it. And I was like, they've got a fucking car phone in this movie. Where'd your money come from? What's all this about? We know he pays taxes because he talks about it a whole lot. The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and this movie are like one of the most perfect artistic examples of the difference between the seventies and the eighties that I can possibly think of. Yes, for sure. And in, 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 I had sent an article to you that was written by Chuck Bowen, which uh, was on slant a while back. And I had always heard that this movie was satire mm. of what it's hard to yes, say. Yes, Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. I think that that's exactly what Just I said. America. <laughs> and Bowen in that says, To consider the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 as a satire is to embrace a watered-down interpretation of that word. It's really failed camp. There's a lot that's happening in here, like the yuppies being the most abhorrent people in the movie, (laughs) in a movie full of cannibals. And so, like, there's that, but, like, it doesn't necessarily have, like, a central statement. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, but it's it's fun to watch. And it's I mean, I would love for you to describe the events of roughly the second half of the movie after the leather faces show up at the radio station. I can't I can't do it. I don't <laughs> I know that I know that stretch is being chased the entire time in this. Another thing that this person had brought up that I had I somehow had never made the connection that again, uh, the author's name is Chuck Bowen. Mm-hmm. I never made the connection that all of this more or less is kind of remade into the devil's rejects like not officially obviously but like i didn't pick that like the devil's rejects rob Mm. zombies movie takes a lot from what's happening in this movie like down to kind of like details of like death scenes and stuff and i didn't i Mm. i hadn't really put that together it's fan fiction it, it, it yeah it does i mean it does feel a bit like fan fiction like i didn't pick that up until i rewatched the scene where and this is Again, like I can't tell how funny it's supposed to be, although I think it's supposed to be a little funny. There's a part where Stretch's like production assistant at the radio station, maybe the only other guy who yeah. works at the radio station. Her workplace like helper guy and sexual harasser who we kind of like. Yeah, who we kind of like, who, who when he dies, she says, I loved you in a way that's never resolved. But um, um, <laughs> he's... 
she like comes to when Leatherface is is cutting bits of flesh off of him and cutting his face mm-hmm. off. Yeah, he sure is. And Leatherface puts then like here's Stretch and Leatherface. By the way, earlier on in this movie, unlike first Leatherface of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, who has like kind of a very interesting relationship with gender as portrayed throughout mm. that movie sort of like at what he dresses up as who he dresses up as when I'm saying he being awfully presumptuous about what we know about Leatherface mm-hmm. but the one thing we will not do on the show is presume Leatherface's gender yeah and Leatherface makes it difficult to presume the gender yeah. based on, on yes. presentation throughout the first movie this is much discussed mm-hmm. in this movie Leatherface is a horny little boy yes He's Jason, really. He is Jason. There's a long scene at the opening. Sorry, this is going to come back to what I was saying earlier, but there's a long scene in the radio station when Leatherface goes in and he's got his big dick of a chainsaw sort of like straddling Mm -hmm. stretch in a scary way. She's trying to like, she observes the psychosexual nature of what's happening and tries to like steer the ship a little bit by um um what did she say she's like you're so good or something like yeah she sure does she's doing a jenny fields well explain that jenny is the main character of friday the 13th part two. <gasps> oh yes yeah and she like goes to jason's hut in the woods and finds his altar to his dead mom with her mummified head and her old sweater and she like puts the sweater on and she's like, Jason, you've been a good boy. Stop the killing now. It's very smart. My favorite Ginny Fields. We've talked about this before on the show is my favorite Ginny Fields ripoff is Tommy Jarvis in the fourth movie. Yes. Being like, Jason, I'm you actually. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that all the time. So back at the radio station Mm -hmm. Leatherface is swinging their big uh, uh, saw dick around and Mm -hmm. it's like a much more sexual and sexually aggressive in the menace because I kind of think the thing that is interesting about Texas Chainsaw the the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is for all of the horrendous things that happen and for how horrendous Sally's fate is there's somehow Mm -hmm. never sexual menace you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. it's just brute violence that is agnostic to like sexual assault as if it's going in that direction. Well, and interestingly, Franklin is the only person who gets killed with a chainsaw, I think, because they just couldn't justify the blood budget any yeah. other way. <laughs> the first guy, Pam, killed with a sledgehammer like cattle. Kirk, I don't know if we know. But like, yeah, I think everyone else is it's the thing is that they see you as cows. So this is one of the things that is said to be parody or satire Mm. in this movie, because when she's when Leatherface is coming at her in this way and her legs are kind of like spread wide open and they're Mm -hmm. glistening and they're like right next to a bunch of like beer and juice cans. And she's over a huge tub of ice with soda in it as if they're at a wedding. The reason I bring all that up is because later on, Stretch is hiding out while Leatherface is cutting up her friend slash uh, uh, co-worker slash mm-hmm. sexual harasser. And LG. she makes a little noise and Leatherface notices her and comes and like doesn't kill her immediately because Leatherface has a crush on this gal that'll come up sort mm-hmm. of throughout the rest of the rest of the movie. But he does give her a nice little trophy of what he's been doing over there and puts this guy's face, like severed face, on her face. And this is something that happens again in The Devil's Rejects, which is why I brought that up. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
yeah and then and, and it becomes fun in its own different direction but uh <laughs> so now she's kind of like in haunted house land and is just running from the family running from oh and yeah. <laughs> the reason why i said that i didn't know if it was supposed to be funny that guy is somehow still alive he gets up without his face and like missing a lot of the covering of yeah. his ribs let me tell you alex that was my favorite part it was really kind of fun the whole conversation with the the guy whose face had just been cut off because he was so nice he really tried to help her and he did it felt like this really sweet moment where also i was doing a full body cringe because of how <laughs> stressful it is to walk someone whose face has been cut off like that you know yeah. and I, I i was like i love this and it really made me think about how people are always like why do you like horror and i'm like well it's socially meaningful and blah 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 but also like it feels good it feels good to walk something like that you're like uh, and then your body relaxes it's some kind of a high and it feels makes life feel less scary i well it's like it like feels like a fever dream yes yeah. So, so another thing that Bowen had said in that article, which I was, I wanted to talk about is he said, yeah, as passive aggressively lousy as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is, it occasionally achieves a tone of anarchic luridness that's proved to be significantly yeah. influential on better horror films. Ah, good for it. And like anarchic luridness is like a really great way to describe what's happening here in a thing yeah. that I like in a movie, even if I don't like the movie overall is like these kind of scenes where you're like, what the? fuck is happening yeah and this movie does that for sure so she's running kind of the rest of the movie trying to outrun the family as they're trying to get her and then we essentially for like the last 10 15 minutes reenact the family dinner scene of the first movie which makes me want it's been you know 12 or 13 years since the first everything that happened in the first movie mm-hmm. i'm curious about why they still believe that grandpa can take someone down with one swing of a hammer because he can't now he couldn't then they're trying to make it happen i know you'd think that they stopped after that because it went so badly for them but apparently they still do it they say you know what it reminds me of is it's like you decide to believe something first and then reverse engineer everything from that like they just like believe that he is mystical in some way and they keep giving him the opportunity hoping he'll fulfill it and no they just it just leads to their downfall every time Mm -hmm. (laughs) yes it's a great example of american political belief (laughs) i also like there are so many moments where i like laughed out loud in this movie like when the cook brother uncle is like he's 137 years old (laughs) he's as quick as jesse james and you're like i'm glad we're acknowledging that this man has to be impossibly old and just (laughs) and then meanwhile as all this is going on uh dennis hopper is just off by himself like running around with a chainsaw shouting things like this movie is like cnn and that you have to have a high tolerance for white men shouting at each other to be able to enjoy it he realizes at some point by like cutting open a wall that the wall is filled with meat so like they're (laughs) they're going around and they're just getting meat around and they're putting it in these hot abandoned walls the lack of food safety is the real (laughs) scandal here And then Dennis Hopper jumps in. He has like a Motel Hell style fight with Leatherface. Leatherface takes the saw to the gut. And then at the end of the movie, Stretch reenacts 
Leatherface's famous chainsaw swing and dance. I'd say with a little less confidence than uh, Gunnar Hansen did. No offense to Stretch, yeah. but it's, I'm sure it's scary. Well, he, I think Gunnar Hansen probably had could handle that chainsaw more easily. Well, Gunnar Hansen, I mean, <laughs> Stretch is like seven feet tall and maybe 92 pounds. And Gunnar Hansen was like a, like 300 pounds and 5'11". <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So I feel like him swinging a chainsaw is a, is a more rational proposition. Yeah. He's a big, strong teddy bear. He looks like he's got a hedge trimmer. So Bill Mosley plays Chop Top. Is Chop Top the hitchhiker from the first movie? Chop Top is the hitchhiker's twin brother. Okay. Duh. The hitchhiker is the corpse that Chop Top is always carrying around. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I thought he was carrying Grandpa around, but I realize now that Grandpa showed up still somehow alive. Later on. Yeah, he's carrying his brother around, his brother's corpse around. Right, of course, because famously the hitchhiker got ran over by a semi in the last movie. Yeah, and he and so and so Chop Top was it was serving in Vietnam, not while the last movie happened, but I guess he was still away because the last movie yeah. happened after. I, I like to think that he was like at Opryland that day and he came home and was like, oh, no, oh, no. Yeah. So he was he's in this. He's he's also um, he's really great and terrifying when he wants to be or very funny when he wants to be yeah his energy in this is incredible it's like it's really something yeah and and it would be remiss uh someone would point out that we do not mention the fact that when he says dog will hunt that is something that is sampled in uh primus's jerry was a race car driver nice in the middle of the song there's a part where this like all the music drops out and then you hear the chainsaw come up and he says dog will hunt and it's like becomes such a part of Primus lore that like it's hard to differentiate that actual sample in Les Claypool's voice. Like they just kind of became the same thing. And I feel like Bill Mosley as Chop Top is Primus's aesthetic. <laughs> yeah. When you picture the band Primus, just look at him. Well, that's good for them. I, d- I have never listened to Primus outside of the South Park theme song, but like even the South Park theme song gives you that impression, honestly. And for the record, the South Park theme song is amazing. It's so, oh, it's, it's great. It's like, where would South Park be without that theme song? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. For people who don't know or are trying to remember, let's just do it. Going down, down to South Park, going to have myself a time. Friendly faces everywhere, without temptation. I think those are the lyrics. Going down South Park, going to have a see some friends of mine. It's so strange. It's like a Mr. Rogers theme from hell. Every high school had like one or two bands that for some reason everyone was into. And it makes no sense as to like why or how that happened. And my high school was Pearl Jam number one and then Primus number two. Like kids who liked country music, like horse girls liked Primus. Like it was a weird (laughs) thing that I cannot explain. (laughs) Can you write a zine called Horse Girls Liked Primus, an autobiographical zine? A zine? (laughs) Where were we? Oh, bands. Yeah. (laughs) And then it ends. And then it ends. And the, the, by, for people who don't know what we mean by reenacting Leatherface from the first movie, she like, they, she climbs some kind of crazy tower with Chop Top, which, like, what part of the Alamo is that about? Did they say? There's like this huge staircase to like a, a tower. Yeah, I just it's, don't know. It's like know. they're at the top of the Matterhorn, I guess. And she like throws Chop Top off and then she like 
t twirls around. Does she even have a chainsaw? I can't remember. She does. Yeah, she does. She puts okay. it. She and then she does the thing that the movie opens with too, which I really mm. like, where the chainsaw goes in the. It's hard to explain the chainsaw dance. You kind of have to look it up, but like she, the chainsaw goes <laughs> over the head. And mm -hmm. then it like she's like shaking it with both of her arms over her head while her hips are kind of shaking. You kind of whip it around as if you're demonstrating centrifugal force. Yes. <laughs> for kids. And it's not like I don't feel like it's implying that the killer within her has awakened like lame horror movies do. It's just like don't fuck with stretch, basically. And yes. it's, it's, it's kind of a joyous like, I don't know, when 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 Leatherface does it in the first movie. Like the whole aesthetic of the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre is as if an auteur from France was taking a trip in Texas and accidentally <laughs> got footage of all these kids being murdered, you know, and it ends with like chains with <laughs> Leatherface whipping his chainsaw around doing the dance. like, And it's like and the evening sun streaking the sky. And then it's just like goes cuts to credits in a very French way, you know, yes. yeah, it's very arty. Yeah. And this is not that. Yeah, but like you feel it's a very alien to aliens relationship aesthetically where the first one is like quite lean and the second one is busy, busy, busy. Mm -hmm. I think more than any other horror movie, the task of make another one of these <laughs> is so hard because yeah, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original is not just like Leatherface and Chainsaw, like it's like this fully shaped, like perfect entity. Yeah, it is. Where what the fuck do you do? And I think that, you know, Toby Hooper was wise and it, we we acknowledged sort of via text while we were doing this. that This is mm -hmm. probably going to be our second Toby Hooper movie within like oh, oh, several weeks of each other. So like we're really <laughs> seeing the spread of what Toby Hooper is capable of. But I think like knowing he was going to, and I haven't listened to any of the commentary or whatever, so I don't know what his take is, but my, my sense is that he's like, well, sure, I'll make it and sure, I'll make some money, but like, what's the point of trying to make something that is exactly like the first one that's like so mm -hmm. fundamentally impossible? Mm -hmm. And I like that you said that this is like the alien's approach, although the only place where I'd, I'd push back on that is like, mm. I get this sense that like, James Cameron was like, I get what to do with the fabric of this universe it, from James Cameron's yeah. perspective. Right. And in this, I love a sequel that is fundamentally different than the other. I just don't fully get the sense that he cared. <laughs> no, no. It feels more like a movie where somebody had some stuff they wanted to try out. And also to talk about Dennis Hopper going around the like the Leatherface complex like he stumbles across this like mummy in a wheelchair and he's like Franklin and when he said Franklin I laughed in pure joy for like eight seconds and it was like the part at the end of the seventh Saw movie where Carrie Elways shows up again it just gave me like pure joy what did it do for you exactly I don't know why. I guess was like, oh, my God, this is like how they're integrating the canon of the first movie. And it was like so kind of silly and yes. so satisfying to me where it was like, oh, my God, it's Franklin. <laughs> you know, where it just when fan service hits right, it makes you so happy is the thing. It's funny that the whole arc is that like there's this cop whose brother's kids died by chainsaw. <laughs> He's the only cop in all of Texas that takes this seriously. 
Yeah, none of the other ones care. <laughs> yeah, like there are chains, as described in a like very weirdly paced uh, voiceover at the beginning of the movie. <laughs> this didn't stop in 1974. It's been happening nonstop since. Yeah. And the Texas police uncharacteristically are like, whatever, as opposed to like being obsessed with the idea of finding some kind of murderous cult, as we know they were in the 80s. And he's like going to crime scenes where there's chainsaw marks on cars where someone got his head cut in half with a chainsaw and the cops are like, just a couple of guys goofing off. (laughs) Which both is and isn't perfect, like, cop, right? Exactly. (laughs) Totally. Because it isn't for the like the desire to find cults in the 80s, but it is because I feel like, you know, many, 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 many police in history and in the future will look at something like that and be like, classic case of teenagers hanging out. <laughs> I feel like the kind of key thing that I want to make sure to talk about with you here is that like, I find it so odd, but so strange that like in the first movie, they're like a family trying to get by. And I guess selling barbecue at a gas station because only doing it kind of at subsistence level. And in this, there's like, especially at the end, and I think this is where the alleged parody comes in, so much ranting and raving from Uncle Drayton Sawyer, (laughs) the cook, about like how hard it is to be a small businessman. And it's like, we get it. Reaganomics. But like, why is the family this ambitious? I had no idea this was what they wanted for themselves. That's the weird thing to me. Why did they do this? He says the small businessman gets it up the ass twice. Is this movie really about taxes and economics? I mean, especially having gone through years of being a Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan, for whatever reason hoping every time there's a new movie for some reason they'll accidentally be able to nail something worthwhile never happens mm-hmm. as a person who's experienced all of those in one way or another i i like this movie a whole lot i think it's like it's it's super silly yeah it's not satire it's silly it's silly it's i do like the prescription of failed camp but i think it is successful i think actually like that whole with no, I, there's so many pieces that to me suggest that it's actually like extremely on the nose, well accomplished camp. Mm-hmm. Him accepting the speech at the chili cookoff is nuts. Incredible. The whole exchange with Leatherface and the saw in Stretch's legs feels extremely campy. It's which is the only thing that saves it from being extremely menacing. Yeah. Well, it's it's both, you know, because I feel like you could read it straight yes. and I kind of did. But I also think that it's like it's so clearly that it's like cutting to the chase of what all the sexualized violence in slasher movies is about, which is yes. using the weapon as a proxy for your dick. Yeah, ab- absolutely. That Yeah. So well said. And then just like the run through, you know, to your point of like if the other movies, the 70s, this movie's the 80s, like remember the house in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is crusty and greasy and Mm -hmm. like cover whatever. Full of chicken feathers. Chicken feathers. This is just like a 3,000 foot long dark hanger with a bunch of lights in it. Different colored lights. Which they've decorated (laughs) some. It's very Phantom of the Opera. It's very Hannibal Lecter's storage unit. They could probably save a little money on them getting fucking fucked by the government by unplugging some of those lights. I know. It's very theatrical. (laughs) They've got to calm down with the lights. But it's that, that set is kind of wonderful and ridiculous and big and gaudy. Everything that Dennis Hopper delivers is 
absolute <laughs> on the fucking nose camp. The guys yeah. at the beginning, the, the preppies, uh, the preps at the beginning. I mean, like everything yeah. is wild. <laughs> I think like Dennis Hopper, the thing about Dennis Hopper is that not that many people, when you think about it, could give such a performance all by themselves alone in a room. <laughs> <laughs> Him and Bob Hoskins. Yeah, it's and I guess like maybe we're left to assume that Chop Top is the reason for all of this over-the-top stage managing of the whole operation because he's the character who was away when the first movie was happening. <laughs> and like maybe he's like, no, we're gonna do it with a little ambience. All right. <laughs> like Sarah Jessica Parker in the first wife's club. All I want is some ambiance and some classic good taste. <laughs> We do have a a delightful, like probably the best use of an Oingo Boingo song in any movie. Yes. We have No One Lives Forever, which is playing while these guys are, it it, it starts playing when they notice the truck in the road or the the truck is waiting for them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the truck is full of the Leatherface family uh, waiting to take them down. And that's perfect. It's perfect. And it's like, yeah, I... You know, stand back, weird science. You're no longer needed here. (laughs) What was your take on the Chop Top character, who's our kind of like first personal interaction we have with these people outside of just murder? Yeah, I thought it was um, like it felt like a genuinely chaotic character and like menacing in the way that the hitchhiker was partly because he is repeatedly like burning himself so (laughs) you're like we don't know what the hell to expect from this guy because it conveys that you're not afraid of what somebody might do to you i love this character a whole lot and i don't know why like i just like the presentation a whole lot i don't know much about the background i do know that they had started as if he were going to play the hitchhiker whose name is Nubbins mm-hmm. for some reason that comes up re- repeatedly. <laughs> Did in the movie. not know that. Yeah, his name's Nubbins, the hitchhiker. This guy, Chop Top, uses the word fave a lot, which I think is really nice. <laughs> I just don't know. Like, apparently he was supposed to play him and I don't know what happened. I don't know if it was that someone was like, hey, he died in the first movie. Or right. it seems like Bill Mosley was putting together a like a backstory in his head, which is like why we get this like fake burned out hippie character he's doing. They're just the hippie twins, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's about birth year. I could watch him all day. In what format would you like to see him? Like maybe an Elvira kind of job talk show. <laughs> Ch- chop top chat. <laughs> Although to be fair, I've been I've been really like weirdly into watching old Letterman clips, like eighties Letterman clips. Yeah, I can tell. And occasionally Letterman would just play this character. (laughs) In what way? Like just sort of get freaking people out because they have no clue what he's gonna do next. Yeah, and just like in a in a like like Letterman would interview people straight. And then it felt like sometimes he just like inhabited another almost like buffoonish character that he would like feed in and out of. And that kind of feels like what Chop Top is doing. (laughs) Chop Top is like 10% 80s Letterman. (laughs) So do you want to you want him to have a night like a late night show? Not like morning TV. Yeah. Late late night Chop Top. Yeah. Yeah. Late night Chop Chop Top. Chop Top. (laughs) And then after this. I feel like there's another, oh, there's the Renee Zellweger one. Is that the next one after this one? With Matthew McConaughey. No, that's the fourth one. The third one had Viggo Mortensen in it. 
Oh my god. <laughs> so many celebrities. That's when they start because one throwaway line that brother, uncle, dad, whatever <laughs> says in this is the saw is family. And then that just becomes the motto of the series from here on out is the size family. That's nice. It's nice that the family lore is growing. So yeah, the, the third one is also a canon. Oh, no, no, no. It's New Line. Mm. Third one, New Line Cinema gets involved. They bought it. They bought the franchise from canon. I imagine that canon was not stoked about how Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 went. Also, we should note that Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 had a bit of a hard time because it had what was really kind of incredible visual marketing which was they Hmm. emulated the the poster to um a breakfast club right yeah i love that poster they're yeah they're very clearly doing a breakfast club pose with all their gross characters it's so funny but like also it's like who was that for like who who teen girls who love gross stuff i mean we do exist but maybe not in demographically gigantic numbers yeah it just it just didn't make any sense yeah i i think yeah i think that this is like this is a movie that i enjoy i think it was not a thing that i would ever recommend like to someone just because they're into the texas chainsaw massacre no Or like, I would recommend it. I would, I think I would be like, do you like movies that are just like really chaotic and like really like quite horror-y, but also not really scary, but gross? <laughs> That's when you should watch it. And it, and it, they, they would be like, does it have themes? And you're like, no. I also like, by the way, Alex, it wasn't until this moment that I realized Sawyer was like a pun name because it has the word saw in it. Yeah. And I've known that for about 15 years. I only realized it today myself there you go we have a very (laughs) special kind of intelligence oh i love this quote from stretch leatherface is chasing her and menacing her in this attic and she says i'm trying to be open with you (laughs) (laughs) and it's like it sounds like is she breaking up with him Yeah, I can't, like, Leatherface is hounded throughout this movie for having an interest in this, this uh, in Stretch. Yeah. And she tries to do the best she can with that, but really, like, there's a lot on her shoulders. She shouldn't have to navigate this situation. It's kind of an underplayed moment, maybe, of, like, someone chasing you with a chainsaw and being like, listen, this relationship isn't working. Like, that's <laughs> brilliant in its own way. As is grandpa, brother, father, uncle's, line you got one choice boy sex or the saw and like ain't that the truth what does that mean (laughs) it means that like he can either stay loyal to the saw wielding ways of his family or he can betray them by getting a girlfriend i guess they're very codependent these leather faces yeah and he that's where we heard this saw his family because he's like well sex sex is from well i don't know yeah but the saw the saw is family. Yes. And then he says to Stretch, leave him alone, damn it. And it's like, I realize you perceive her as a threat to you, but that's kind of odd. The one thing that remains the same outside of the fact that it has a couple of the same characters from the first movie is like Leatherface is victimized by by Leatherface's family. <laughs> Yep. Leatherface remains far and away the most sympathetic character of the Sawyer clan. That's the thing about Leatherface. Like he's, you know, being victimized by this family that needs him to carry out killing for them. And it makes you think about the power structures uh, in violence. And I'm not even kidding. And then finally, 
brother, father, uncle's quote that life is a that it's a dog eat dog world, and there ain't enough damn dogs. <laughs> the end. <laughs> that's that's Reaganite economic policy for you. It's so funny. Like, what is brother, father, uncle's political ideology? <laughs> Well, he looks like Jimmy Carter, but that's a red herring. He's getting too taxed for his own good, as far as he's concerned, and there need to be more dogs. I would call it the second Southern strategy of using economic complaint to justify unrelated moral atrocity. That's what we're doing in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. (laughs) And is it a movie that sums up the 80s? Yes. And is it also disgusting and hard to pin down tonally? Yes. What were the 80s? That. QED. Exactly. That's exactly what they were about. Watch it if you want to see the real 80s, not those cute little stranger things, little pumpkins driving their bikes around. It's this. Did I tell you I was on 1999, the podcast. I had a great time. talked about the movie Go for the second time in an interview, not on our show. I love that you're a professional. You should make a business card that said Alex Steed talks about Go. I'm a professional Go commentator. Um, Yeah. I was on and the show is great. It was really lovely. I had a great time. But oh, we were talking about like if you were to remake Go like and and what I guess like what music would go in like that's kind of the only Mm. thing that feels like it's out Mm. of place. And we were talking about how movies or shows that are made about 20, 30 years ago when they put the music in something about like inauthentic use of the music takes you out of it or whatever. And so I use that as an opportunity to talk about how much Stranger Things irritates me. And I did it. (laughs) I just like you should just never do that. You should just never do that because you can be confident that the people that you're bringing up to bringing that up to are like a big stranger things fans mm-hmm. what i did like that john the, the host said that did not certainly make me a stranger things fan but like it was a it was a context that i appreciated was he was like stranger things is not about the 1980s mm. stranger things is about the cinematic universe of the imagination of the 1980s. Totally. Yeah, I think that's true. And I was like, oh, that's a cool, that's a super cool way to look at it that makes me give it a little less shit. I just don't want to watch it. Yeah, you don't have to watch it. It's okay. Well, Sarah Marshall. (laughs) So that's what the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 is about. This is perfect. This is a favorite format is when we talk yeah. around a thing and then get fully outside of it <laughs> yep and then are like well that's that's the movie <laughs> <laughs> um there is a uh, no dad no father in this movie there's a grandpa there's a grandpa but he's not thriving <laughs> he is not thriving uh we know that the grandpa is a father of someone <laughs> But who? So we know that not many fathers. Who, in your view, is the daddy, Sarah? I love Stretch. Stretch is so great because there's so much going on in this movie. It's impossible to spend enough time on her. But she is like a cool ass radio DJ, which is an amazing role in 80s horror. It's also what Adrian Barbeau does in The Fog Mm. and Lynn Thigpen in The Warriors, which is neither 80s nor horror, but whatever. And... I feel like she is kind of in the middle between like so resourceful that you can't believe her and so bad at this that you can't root for her. Like she feels pretty (laughs) real to me. She has smart moments. She has dumb moments. She breaks up with Jigsaw. I like that she's the one twirling at the end. I like 
that she's able to survive without the movie implying that she's either been driven crazy or is a killer now herself. She's just like a working woman in Texas putting in another tough night. Who among us? Yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> like Karen Silkwood. She's a woman <laughs> of the Texas, Oklahoma region, or at least that's what her radio call letters imply. Um, I did like earlier that you said that both Stretch and Lefty, Lefty is uh, Dennis Hopper's character, mm. are your type. <laughs> <laughs> cool women and men who might kill me. The dream. <laughs> it's the Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz of this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's like a hellish version of that. It's the awakening movie of bisexuality and you have issues. <laughs> I'm going to pick Dennis Hopper, just Dennis Hopper, Dennis Hopper. I love that he showed up in this movie. I love how he shows up in this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He just, he's he's there for it. Like, he doesn't seem, like, yeah. extremely irritated by being there. And then my uh, my second, obviously, is Bill Mosley. I say dog will hunt maybe once a week to myself, um, <laughs> largely because of Primus, but because he brought it to us. So, uh you know, thanks, rugged, scary guys. I like you. Yeah, I had no idea. That's so great. Yeah, I feel like actors who are used to doing not horror, who turn up in horror, have um, a real tendency to either put in minimal effort or just do all their worst tendencies as actors, like when Corin Nemec was in that Ted Bundy thing. <laughs> and Dennis Hopper is just like serving Dennis Hopper. I feel like this is basically what he does in Blue Velvet, which also came out the same year, I'm pretty sure. So that's amazing. Oh, you're right. Did you see, I, I know we've talked about it here and there, and I can't remember if you've seen it, but have you seen the Corin documentary that came out about the kid who went missing? No. Wow. The, God, what is it? My name is Steven. Right, because Corin Nemec was in the TV movie at the time, and then they they brought him in for that or something. Right, yeah, he comes in and does all the line reads for the Stephen guy because he's dead. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he reads for all the lines in the documentary, and wow. I just think it's true. I mean, it's the most tremendous use of like whatever a a, a postmodern texture on a narrative without trying to be cute. I don't think they no. were trying to be cute. Like, I think that they were like, this is the closest we have. (laughs) Right. And it feels like a way of dealing with the fact that, like, especially for things that happen in the 80s and 90s, the movie of the week version kind of becomes the idea the public has of it. And you can maybe use that in positive ways sometimes. Anyway, that was a long thing about a movie that this is not. We're talking about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's that's the thing about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too. It's really about everything. It's about America. (laughs) It's about culture. It's about media. It's about the 80s. It's certainly about meat. It's about the small businessman taking it in the ass. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a movie that, like, tries to carry too many things home from the grocery store and falls down. But you love it. I love it. I love this little movie that fell down. (laughs) I do, too. Thanks for suggesting it. Oh, thank you for being a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 guy, Dragle Hunt. <laughs> it's just nice to do something from the sort of like bottom shelf VHS, like convenience store rental shelf of okay. our shared history. And yeah, it's always special to do that. I agree. All right, everybody. That is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thanks for being here. 
Thank you, Leatherface, for doing what you do. Thanks to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode and editing the episode. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for editing the episode. Thanks to Fresh Lush for providing the beats that make the show sound so sweet. Thank you for listening. We appreciate you. Thanks for supporting us on Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate your support there. Again, that's the reason the show is possible. So thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting us. Hey, if you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts and that's something you can do, that's helpful. We appreciate everyone who's done that. Super, super helpful. And if you know someone who'd like the show, send them a text. Let them know they should be listening to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. We appreciate you letting folks know in any way that you are able to. Find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. That's it for now. Thanks for being here, y'all. We really appreciate it. We're so glad that we got to do this. And don't you forget it, that you, my friend, are good.